All right, welcome back, everyone, to part two of this special holiday episode where I'm here with Dr. Vera Rajagopal, who's a scientist at Regeneron, and we're breaking down some of the biggest stories of 2023 in the world of genetics and precision medicine. So we finished the last episode talking about founder populations and some of the major population genomics programs that are uncovering things that were impossible or, or going to be very difficult to uncover in some of the European ancestry-dominated research programs. We talked a little bit about FinGen, and we talked about a uh, really interesting variant identified in a Puerto Rican population through some 23andMe work. We're going to continue the discussion around some of these population genomics programs around the world. And the first one we wanted to jump back into uh, was a Notch 3 mutation discovery in a South Asian cohort that you, Dr. Vera, highlighted in a, again, amazing tweet thread that we'll have in the show notes. Maybe you can talk a little bit about that one, why it was so interesting to you and you flagged it up. Yeah. So we are talking about findings from non-European populations. So South Asian population is is my favorite for the obvious reason. I'm I'm from India, but also, you know, the South, uh, South Asian population is, has like a lot of untapped, you know, potential to, for many genetic discoveries, you know, still we are just scratching the surface. And most of the GWA studies, the, the South Asian populations are the most underrepresented, you know. And there's like still there's a lot more to learn what is what kind of genetic risk factors are there and things like that. And so this this study is from my colleagues at the Regeneron Genetic Centers. So we collaborate with a lot of academic and research institutions across the world. So one of our collaborators is from Pakistan, genomic, Pakistan Genomic Resource, led by Danish Salin. And you might be familiar with this physician. He's a physician scientist and there's like many landmark papers from that resource. One of the first human knockout papers came out from this resource. So here, my colleagues have been like looking into the genetics of stroke. And when they did an exomoid association study, they identified one particular locus near Notch 3. This is a very interesting locus because Notch 3 mutations causes a Mendelian disease kind of, you know, stroke syndrome. It's been known for a long time. It's, it causes very early onset stroke and also it characterized by, you know, many other features like dementia and things like that. And I'm sure like when people started looking into, you know, like stroke, when they first started doing GWAS of stroke, when they were looking into the findings, you know, always when we do this kind of GWAS, we always go and look into our favorite genes or genes that we know like really, you know, Mendelian kind of, that causes Mendelian kind of diseases, right? So, and interestingly, so far, there has been no GWAS signal at this locus. The last GWAS of stroke was like more than 1 million individuals, I think, like from be predominantly based on European cohorts. And now we are looking at one particular variant, coding variant, that is probably the most important risk factor in South Asian population. And this is like really important because, you know, for example, if we are doing a disease risk prediction, right, using genetic risk scores or anything, We'll be like completely missing out this variant if you are using an European-based GWAS to predict the risk factors. And also, this is like and very clear, you know, we know a lot about this genes being like, uh, it causes this Mendelian disease, been investigated for a long time. And, you know, and now we know there is like a mild penetrant mutation as well. And this is a major risk factor. Stroke is very prevalent in South Asia. So this kind of reminiscent of what we found in 
African populations, African-Americans for the APOEL1 kidney disease, right? So it's like a very clear target population and you have a gene and then, you know, there is a huge opportunity to make some big, you know, like um, translational impact, you know, in these populations. It's a very similar situation here. That's why I'm very excited about this finding. And I'm sure like there are so many findings like this. This is just, you know, the beginning of all this, you know, important discoveries that will be coming from the South Asian population. Yeah, and there were a couple of really interesting things that stood out to me from the the paper in this finding. The I think the size of the population was around seventy five thousand Pakistanis who were sequenced. So, so first of all, orders of magnitude smaller than the million person GWAS that you've described before. But also great to see that some of these exome sequencing programs are getting to scale in places besides the UK. Um, so I suspect in the next couple of years that kind of resource may reach hundreds of thousands of people, which is which is great. And also, I think they estimated that around 5.5% of strokes within this population could be attributed to, or at least have a, you know, that that particular variant in that gene as a major causal factor, which is pretty interesting in and of itself that you're explaining a large fraction of a very common issue where there was really no no clear genetic evidence before. So I think it's a pretty amazing piece of work that highlights both the underlying biology, but also seems like it could have a very clear and immediate impact within this population as well in the next couple of years. This is the kind of thing that you can think about screening for in families with a family history of stroke, for example, as part of a broader panel. So I think this is the kind of work that goes, that hits discovery, translation, and healthcare pretty quickly, right? You could see this having an impact on people immediately and not just being a, a research finding that is, um, that's kind of curious. Absolutely. There's another paper that we wanted to highlight from South Asia. So there was, I think, the first probably large-scale whole genome sequencing data set that did uh, an interesting look at the genetic architecture of, of South Asia more broadly. So 5,000 whole genomes published, I think, in June of this year, or May, actually, and you wrote a great thread about it in June. Maybe you can talk a little bit about that and why this paper was was a landmark. So the reason why I was, I was telling before the South Asian population, you know, has like untapped potential for discoveries is like um, two major population phenomena, right? So one is like consanguinity and then endogamy. So these are cultural practices that's been happening for thousands of years. And endogamy is like, you know, even a bigger one because of how the caste system has been organized for, you know, since the colonization or even, even before that, but it intensified after the colonization. And these actually had a stronger impact on the genetic architecture of Indians like that's living today, right? So we, we talked about Finland, Finnish population, we talked about Icelandic population. These are all bottleneck population. And as a result of, you know, like isolation, people have been marrying within this community. And this results in the increased frequency of rare deleterious variants, right? And so that also increases the opportunity to identify homozygous variants who might be a knockout for a particular gene. So now imagine like Finland or Iceland, but like 3,000 to 4,000 Finland, Iceland packed into a, you know, country. Right. That is India. So... Right. This is like you have so many castes, so many groups, and, you know, like there has been like some landmark studies on this that have clearly shown 
you know, you can actually quantify how much of, you know, parental relatedness is there based on the genome, based on looking at the stretches of homozygous segments, right? Regions of homozygosity. But previous studies has been very scattered and they use this, you know, like uh, DNA array data to look at some of the common variants and, you know, and this is the first time we are ha actually looking at the rare variants and the exome sequencing data. So this is from, you know, a company called Medgenome in India. It's like an emerging company. And also they have collaborated with companies in U.S. and also a consortium, a big genome 100K Asia consortium from Singapore. So they have accumulated samples like 5,000 whole genome sequences comprising of Indians and also, you know, Bangladeshis and also Pakistanis. And there's like, again, they find all this, you know, very high prevalence of loss of function variants, you know, some, and then very high prevalence of people who have homozygous loss of function variants. And the very interesting thing is like, when you actually look into the, you know, like the origin of these mutations, right? So the, the loss, enriched loss of function variants in India, for example, is unique compared to enriched loss of function variants in Bangladeshis or in Pakistanis. That makes sense because like these, these enrichment happen within small, small communities. So now if you can zoom into this, you know, for example, India, and you look into individual populations, individual, you know, caste communities, each caste community or the genetic clusters will have their own enriched loss of function variants. And often the genes with homozygous loss of function variants that you will see in this group probably is the only place in the world you will see. So we need a map of loss of function variants and enrichments across the, you know, the country. And this will not only help the people in the community, you know, about what kind of diseases they get from these mutations and, you know, helping them genetics testing, screening and also, you know, but also it helps a lot with drug development and things like that. And that is why people are really interested into this. And this is, this is kind of, you know, we get all these insights from this very beautiful paper. They looked into this and it's really nice. I recommend people reading it. But this is like, you know, as we go, you know, in the upcoming years, we'll be able to see more of this, you know, all the human knockouts, loss of function variants, how much insights we get from these carriers. Do you have a sense of how big a data set like this needs to be for you to start to discover 80, 90% of genes knocked out in its entirety? Because you made the great point earlier, there's both the public health and medical benefit to this, but also we have a long-standing problem in the field of we don't know which genes, what happens when you homozygously knock out a gene? Is it uh, compatible with life? Is it cause, uh, um, you know, rare disease? Does it contribute to a common disease? What is essentially the impact of this? And um, I've seen simulations that look at populations in Europe and then populations that may have higher rates of consanguinity where you'd see this at a higher rate. Do you have a sense from the paper or from other reading that you do of how large a data set like this needs to be to start to, you know, maybe, maybe saturate isn't quite the right word, but to start to get a coverage of every gene in the genome and have some sense of what, what happens basically if it's knocked out on both copies? Yeah, so that's a very good question. So there's like a lot of challenges about these kind of estimations because of the huge heterogeneity, right? So, and I really think the initial step would be to have, you know, a survey of what kind of mutations are occurring more commonly in which regions of, you know, the South Asia, right? And then you can then, if, for example, 
there's like a big discoveries coming up from uh, European-based studies or some important drug targets being developed. And then we can come back here and then, you know, you can see, hey, this gene mutation is enriched in this region. We can do like, you know, targeted sampling of that region to do a lot of studies. So that is how it should be, right? So then you can, based on that, you will know what kind, how many samples you need from this, this particular region. And this, for the same reason, is also difficult to have like a single imputation panel, you know, like we have for other population that is going to work across the country. And that is a other big challenge, you know. So because like I was mentioning to you, Finnish population, FinGen Biobank, Icelandic Biobank, they did not opt for sequencing, right? Because they know they can find 90% of all the interest variants thus by sampling a small subset of the population doing a whole genome sequencing and imputing the variance in the rest of the population, which is not going to be the case in regions like India. Yeah, I also noticed from this paper that they developed an array, I think they called it Sargum, that was specific to this population as well, which was cool to see because uh, we know that there are biases in most of the commonly used genotype arrays, right? Just sort of have one that uh, doesn't miss some of the common, more common and high impact variants that could be totally absent or or hard to impute. And some of the other arrays was also good to see. Yeah, that's a very good point. I, I think that is also available from the Michigan imputation server. If you were, you know, doing any uh, South Asian based GWAS and you have genotypes, then you can actually impute using that. And on that point, even we, now we have even a larger imputation panel from UK Biobank, you know, UK Biobank have 10,000 whole genome sequences of South Asian. That is the largest to date. It's very small compared to Europeans, but it's the largest to date. But it will be really interesting to compare how this panel compares to a panel that have, comes from India, right? So I'm, I'm sure there'll be like more, there'll be like a unique variants that can be, so that I, probably someone would want to combine these two panels to make a, you know, other updated panel that will really help, I think. Yeah, because the, the the point you made at the beginning of this around endogamy as a cultural practice, this is likely going to change as people migrate around the world and live in different places. The effect on the genome will take generations, though, to change, won't it? But it will be interesting to see some of, to compare and contrast large studies in India, Pakistan, Bangladesh with um, the same you know, people from those countries that have emigrated to other other places in the world to see what differences, if any, and may help us also to tease out differences in environment and gene interactions, right, as we think about with the same genetic ancestry, but living in in different parts of the world and different environments. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, and maybe that's a good segue, actually, to the the final paper in this section, which was a paper by Hilary Martin and uh, Daniel Moloski, who I know both know very well. We worked together in Matt Hurl's group for a while, Hilary and I, and Daniel and I went actually university together, but they did this great paper looking at the impact of consanguinity, so marrying close relatives, and the impact on common disease risk. We, we spoke about this before, but you have an increased risk of some recessive rare diseases. That, um, that's probably clear why, because you're more likely to inherit two, you know, two copies of the deleterious variant. But there's been an open question for a little while around what impact this might have on common diseases where the risk is more complex or polygenic. And I don't think they touched too closely on this gene by environment interaction question that we were having here, but there's a natural extension here to think about layering that on top. So I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that 
paper and uh, why you picked it? Yeah, this is another fantastic paper. You know, it uses the samples, um, South Asian samples, British Pakistanis from the genes and head, you know, biobank that is in the UK and also from the UK biobank. So the, the question here is like, we know very well that consanguinity that results in increased, you know, mutation load of deleted recessive mutations in the offspring actually have an effect on, you know, it causes a lot of rare diseases, skeletal deformities, you know, like intellectual disabilities, neurodevelopmental disorders. And this has been known for a long time. And the question they ask here is like, these increase in mutation load, recessive mutation load has an effect on complex, you know, like uh, common diseases, common and complex diseases. This is really a very interesting question because if you go back to the GWAS literature, right? So most of our GWAS association studies as is, you know, based on linear additive model. And, you know, like, so the, the more com most contribution comes from additive effect from the variance, right? And that's been like always, a, you know, big interest in knowing what is the, all that dominant risk alleles or all that like recessive risk alleles. I think for type 2 diabetes, there is like really cool two or three papers that been like from the Broad Institute where they have did recessive association tests and identified some mutations. But the, but the thing is like generally there is interest. This kind of here, what they are showing really answers partly that, that you need population like South Asian population answer that question and people have been looking into the wrong population with that question you know like because there's like in the outbreak population so what the authors here found is like they found that the increase in autozygosity the increase in mutation load is associated with increased risk for common diseases there is a very big problem here when doing this kind of studies is because these are cultural practices that is what have shaped the genetic architecture right consanguinity and this marrying within the community. And so this always go hand in hand with all other confounding risk factors like religiosity or, you know, like having a very particular kind of diet or addiction to very specific substances. So it's very, you know, like it's challenging to disentangle that because otherwise it's, it's down to the you know, like our basic issue of population stratification, chopstick genes, identifying chopstick genes, right? But they beautifully solved this issue by looking at very, you know, like highly consanguineous, you know, people who are offspring of parents who are highly related. So when by looking at these only, you know, like people with very high consanguinity families, they kind of avoided this confounding factors, but they also actually did some within family studies, you know, even within family, the siblings, the amount of deleterious mutations they receive from their parents can mildly differ. And you can leverage this difference to make these kind of association analysis. They actually did the 23 me and they showed that replicated the finding. So the most they identify like few diseases, they highlight type 2 diabetes because it is very highly prevalent in India. And you know, we have a, we we talked about a paper last year, right? So and they show here that just the recessive mutations, right? This kind of uh, recessive mutation load alone could be explaining more than 10% of the type 2 diabetes cases in the Indian population. And that is the kind of question people have been trying to answer by looking at the European population, looking at dominant and recessive, you know, alleles. And so for many reasons, this is really a fantastic paper, actually.
Yeah, and where where do you think they take this from here? Is there are there big unanswered questions that uh, will be addressed by having some of these large scale whole genome sequencing data sets outside of European ancestry populations, or or do you feel like they've covered quite a bit in this paper, and there's there's something else, something different? Um. I think like the next interesting thing would be to go zoom in, right? I mean, this is like genome-wide statistic. So really zoom in to identify what kind of pathways, disease pathways or genes are acting through this. We know only a handful of recessive genes that respond to diabetes risk. So that is the next step, I would say. And for that, you will need either large sample size or, you know, like, we wait and then there will be like isolated reports, case reports from some clinic or someone. This is like a fem, you know, like some very highly penetrant mutation causing MODI or some other gene. And then you connect it back to this paper, right? So somehow the puzzle will start fitting together as years go by. But that is, I think, the most interesting thing because it is, it'll be very nice to know how these pathways differ from the ones that we identified based on GWAS studies. And if that will help with any of the drug development efforts, you know. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I'm interested to see as well whether there are ways they can tease out this gene environment interaction question a little bit more. It's a, it's a very tricky one, but you're right, actually, they they managed to do some really elegant work by looking at uh, the within sibling analysis from the 23andMe data set. Okay, so moving on to our next topic here, we want to talk a little bit about some of the maybe less low-hanging fruits. There were many genes that were discovered early on in the GWAS era. We talked about APOL1, FTO, BCL11A that could be discovered with a relatively small number of people. And you know those have been some of the stories over the last couple of decades of working out the biology underneath those. But we've actually had some things that maybe could have been described as low-hanging fruit, but for some reason weren't discovered until relatively recently. And maybe you can talk about one of these examples, which is a gene called, uh, or at least a, a locus near a gene called ADRA2A, which plays a role in Raynaud's pathophysiology. And uh, maybe this is actually a, a good one to talk about the the breaking news that we were talking about before, because that might actually fall in this in this category as well. But I'll let you talk about this paper first, and then we can decide if we bring that one forward. Yeah, sure. So this is one of my favorite theme where, you know, so we, the GWAS era started like in 2007 or eight, right? So when the first, so after the Human Genome Project, we had this, you know, this linkage disequilibrium-based imputation as picked up, and then we had this people started doing GWAS, right? So they picked the traits. They picked the most common traits, type 2 diabetes, type 1 diabetes, you know, hypertension, bipolar disorder. And interestingly, many of these traits, you know, immediately showed up genes. These genes are, they explain a lot amount of heritability and you only need like few hundred samples or sometimes even less than a hundred samples, for example, you know, for the AMD, CFH locus. So the important question here is like, how many such locus are there, you know, I mean, these are the diseases that we know we've been like, you know, we are really interested. So they picked it. And there is like thousands and thousands of diseases if you took the, if you take the ICD chapter code, right? And there should be genes that are like really important, you know, like that you can identify by doing just a GWAS of, let's say, like thousand samples or 500 cases or so, right? And that kind of studies often come every year. I, I closely watch them. We had a I think a couple last year. And this year we have this one particular paper 
And it's a very interesting condition. They did a GWAS on a very interesting condition called Raynaud's phenomenon. It's been like, it's characterized by, you know, vasoconstriction, sympathetic activation when the individuals are exposed to cold or stress. It's not very, you know, pathologic. So it's self-resolving, but it can be very discomforting. And very interestingly, this has been very first time described by, so the, the, the it's named after the person who described it. He was like a, was a PhD thesis project. So I, I don't think it's even published. It was like based on a thesis project that he did. And Morris Reynard, I think the name. And okay. But the, what did they find? They find this particular locus, very strong locus near the receptor, adrenergic receptor, right? And the beauty here is we very well know this kind of very well aligned with the pathophysiology. We know it's the sympathetic nervous, nervous system is what is like being affected. And here we are finding, you know, the adrenergic receptor. And this is known for a long time. I mean, like even for like in, in 90s, they have shown using experiments by giving adrenergic blockers, specific receptor blockers, and, and see which blocker actually, you know, release the Raynaud phenomenon. And um, it's, it's it's like it's this the, what they find here is exactly the one that they demonstrated previously and the here but it also adds in another like the subtype so previously it was like mainly focused on ADRA2C but it seems based on the G was the ADRA2A is probably having the you know much important role in Lena's phenomenon so this is like a very satisfying finding but also it's something that you could have found if you pick this trade like in 2007 or 8 you know it's just you need like so very few samples this is like reported by two teams the 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 striking thing is like you know one team the team from the finland they actually you know did this analysis they used the finnish samples they used the uk biobank then the couple more samples and there is like you will see the picture that the plot in the paper there's like four manhattan plots individually in each of the cohorts how genome-wide significant hit for ADRA2A. I don't think I've seen ever like that ever before, you know, yes. like do the meta-analysis and then you get the significance or you have a genome-wide significant in one paper, then you replicate it like 0.05 or something. It's like right. four independent samples. Everything is giving genome-wide significant. It's such a strong locus and it's like amazing to see. We didn't know this all these years. Yeah, so I guess the interesting point here is why did something this strong and go undiscovered for so long? And also, how many other are these lurking out there? I, and I, I was thinking as you were saying this, so they, well, they did this in four different biobanks, as I think you mentioned, UK Biobank, uh, Estonian Biobank, FinGen, and then I think there was one more. Were there anything that changed in these in the last two, three years that meant it couldn't have been discovered before. These are common variants. It's a phenotype they'd known. Is it a question of just there are so many phenotypes to to look into and not enough scientists? What's the what's the rate limiter for us finding? Because it, you're right. I mean, you could think of anything and everything that you could ask on a questionnaire or that you could pick up in a medical record. There may be low-hanging fruit to discover. And it's this is the first time I've thought about the fact that maybe there are some really obvious ones that are, you know, you know maybe it's not not obvious, and and I don't want to disparage the great work they've done, but this is a this is a kind of GWAS that maybe could have been done ten years ago that that nobody did, and I wonder why. Yeah, so I'm sure there are like so many different you know like disease traits like this, and it's just a matter of you know like how which one you give importance to, right? So and also someone to take notice of this, right? So I'm I'm sure like 
lot of time when you do like people nowadays do like phenom wide association, right? Every time your biobank comes up, all of us or UK biobank, let's do an association analysis across all the phenotypes that we have, all the ICD codes. And sometimes you also find this in that kind of scan. But I think that it also, it, in a lot of time you will find only when you have, when you, when you actually are looking for it and this particular trait. And for some reason, this trait might not be even included in your phenomenoid association analysis. So it's, it's um, yeah, it's a very interesting kind of theme that I, I really like to, you know, like I watch for like this kind of findings. Yeah, and, and maybe this would be a good time to talk about this interesting late breaking story. So we're, we're recording part two. We took a little break in between part one and part two, and this story came out in the meantime. But I know it was on your radar already. This seems like it's maybe in the same category, actually, of the, the gene had been studied for some other phenotype, but then very smart scientists put two and two together and linked it to something that was previously maybe buried in the literature. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about this and... Um, we can cover it now. Yeah. So just a few days ago, there was a paper in Nature from, you know, scientists from MRC. Some of them are like endocrinologists, very big shots, but the last author, Stephen O'Reilly, he's a famous obesity researcher. He's the one who actually mapped the, you know, some of the very first monogenic Mendelian conditions of obesity. And so really endocrinology, genetics is, I, I really love endocrinologists. It's very fascinating. Often the mechanisms will be like really, really fascinating to look into. So what they, what they found, found here is like, there's like this GDF15. It's a cytokine. It's a hormone that is actually increased during pregnancy. And they found this is actually the major protein that is responsible for a condition called hyperemesis gravidarum, which is characterized by very severe nausea and vomiting, you know, like a, a big proportion of pregnant women actually suffer from this during early trimesters, you know, like early part of the pregnancies. And this sometimes can be very severe. The first author, actually Marlena, in this paper, she actually also had this condition. And that is one of the motivation for her to, you, you know, like to study on this particular condition for her, like, you know, her, her whole career. It's a very interesting story. So it's been like, it's a long evolving story. The, it was the, the GDF15 protein itself was found as like in 1997, I think um, some component of serendipity in that, like they were looking into proteins that's been associated with macrophage activation. And then they found some very new protein that they never saw before. And they got interested into it. And then then they cloned the gene and then only they found the GDF15 gene. And so it's up, so these people, I think it's from the people, Australian scientists, they've been like following up from then on. So they found that, that then they started looking into which tissues are being expressed. And they found that there is like this RNA that the, this gene is like abundantly expressed in the trophoblast in the placental tissue. And that kind of led to them to study is this like genes highly expressed? Is this increased in pregnancy, you know, like condition? And they found, yes, this protein is like really high during the pregnant condition. And this is like, you know, it's probably secreted from the, from the fetus. And this could be an ev ev evolutionarily evolved response for the fetus because it's a cytokine to fight against, the, you know, the pro-inflammatory cytokines that's been produced by the mother. And so that is the starting. But then, the story really evolved over the past 25 years, I think. So the 
one of the main finding, early finding, it is again from the same scientists who cloned the gene, they found that this, you know, when they were looking into what all the tissues that's been secreting, they also found it's been like highly secreted by cancerous tissue. And so they looked into the cancer patient and the cancer patient, GDF15 levels is high, why it is high. And then they've been like looking into that. They found that GDF15 levels is actually is what causing this patient extremely aversive to food intake. And this is kind of causing them for some reason, making them to, you know, like lose their appetite. And this is one of the reasons contributing the cachexia condition that you see, right? And that actually resulted in very big interest. You know, this is like a protein which actually makes you eat less in loss of appetite. So it's obesity target. So that kind of, so I think many companies, particularly industrial researchers, took up this and it's been like intense research. And in 2017, that is the biggest breakthrough in this whole story. Is like they discovered the receptor for GDF. And I still can't believe that four independent research teams from four different companies actually, you know, found it. They independently discovered it and they all got published side by side in Nature Nature Medicine. The most important revelation of this story is like the location of this TDA15 receptor. Okay, so it's located in regions of the brain stem, which are, you know, involved in this something called emergency pathway where, you know, like it has like centers where if it is activated, this kind of prevent the humans to, you know, like eat, like this is kind of probably an evolutionary response to prevent the humans to eat like toxins or things like that, right? And so also the region that also has this kind of the chemoreceptor trigger zone, the emetics, the drugs that we have typically act by hitting this region. And also it seems that the in the increased vomiting and things that are associated with chemotherapy also related to this region, right? What happened is like Stephen was one of the person who actually got this where in the presentation when it happened, even before the publication, and they were telling about the location. And he is like, been interested in all this, right? And he remembered about the, the GDN of the 15 association with the pregnancy and immediately it, it, he got interested and he kind of predicted that this should be something to do with increased vomiting in, you know, like in a pregnancy. And then he started working on it and this is what was like, so he started putting the puzzle one by one and this is on the one side, on the other side, like I said, the first author of this paper she has been suffering from this condition. And so she's a scientist, she's a geneticist. So she thought, okay, no one is studying about it, right? So that's other important fact. So like I said, the initial discovery is like they identified that it's increased in pregnancy, but for some reason, for the next 20 years, no one like, like really keenly looking into why it is increased in pregnancy, but people are like crazy about using this to identify targets to treat metabolic conditions, obesity, et cetera. So Marlena, she wanted to study this and she did this GWAS of hyperemesis gravidarum in 2010 me with collaboration 2010 me and you know she found that strongest locus was GDF15 and it was like really very interesting and they also she also found that the, there's a signal near GFRAL that's like the receptor gene right for the GDF15 when looking into the severity of you know hyperemesis gravidarum. And it's very well fit with what's been known. And, you know, like that's how they kind of, you know, like Marlena and uh, Stefan, they kind of met each other. And th those teams, then they collaborated with a lot of other people. There's like many scientists in this, you know, in the story. And they kind of put together. Okay, so the major 
revelation. That's the, what is the major thing about this paper is that, you know, all this means like all these puzzles are getting put together. And now at some point, okay, we know that GF15 is increased during pregnancy, right? And there's this spike and it's because like it's been secreted from the fetus and that is like hypothesized before, but they actually, for the first time, I think like they empirically show that and that is fine. And it is causing, it is a risk factor and it is causing the hyperemesis gravidarum. And there is a genome-wide locus for GDF15. But there's like one part of the puzzle that doesn't fit well. That is, when you look at the, you know, the, the genetic variations associated with this uh, hyperemesis gravidarum, it said that people who have genetic predisposition, right, genetic variants that increase the GDF15 level, right, they are actually at lower risk of hyperemesis gravidarum. And there is... So Marlena also worked on an exome-wide association study. She actually worked in collaboration with Region Run Genetic Center, who actually helped us sequence the samples she collected. And in this, there's quite a lot, not a large sample, but they identified one deleterious missiles variant, which they predicted to be deleterious. At that point, they didn't know, but you know, it was like it increased the risk for hyperemesis gliadarum a lot. And later they found this is actually, you know, like it prevents the secretion of GDF-15. So it's associated with very severe deficiency. And what it says is like, when you have a rare variant that really causes very low level of GDF-15 in you, it actually increases your risk for hyperemesis gliadarum substantially. So common variant finding, rare variant findings, both did not fit well with our known biology because more GDF-15 actually causes, you know, higher risk for hyperemesis gliadarum. But Stephen, being an endocrinologist, his intuition was that, okay, if this is the case, then that if there is a possibility that GDF-15 system could be acting, could have like a ligand-induced desensitization, you know, might be there, that could be the reason, like the, there's, this is the one that we also see in a lot of other hormonal systems. And so he tried to, you know, see if that is the case. And it turned out that's the that's actually the case. So they did my studies. They did the they primed the mice using low dose GDF15 and then they they gave an acute bolus injection of GDF15. It actually did not cause any, you know, did not reduce the food intake. That is a very established effect of GDF15. But if you don't prime the mice with low dose injection, it actually had an effect. It loss of appetite in a reduced food intake. And that is like animal validation. Then they also did a human validation. To do a human validation, basically what you have, what you will need is like a naturally occurring genetic variation that raises your basal GDF15 and non-pregnant state GDF15 to very high levels, right? So those people probably are immune to hyperemesis gravidarum. Unfortunately, at least so far, we don't know that we, we, there is no such variance, right? So, yeah. but it turned out there is a rare Mendelian condition, thalassemia, right? So people with thalassemia actually have very high levels of GDF-15. Like I mentioned before, GDF-15 is pr produced by many tissues and cells. And it seems that the red blood cells also like, you know, like hematopoietic cells also produce this under stress conditions. And so they use this as a system to see, then if it is true, then women with thalassemia should be immune or at least have a very reduced risk of hyperemesis gravidarum. And we know that the fertility is very low, right? In people with like probably homozygous, but at least in the, you know, like a moderate penetrant conditions, people are, do get pregnant and they give birth, right? So they looked into women with thalassemia 
and they found that impressively less than only 5%, less than 5% of the pregnancy actually had any kind of nausea and vomiting, which is compared to more than 60% in the general population. So it's amazing, but most important thing is this might end up in a very, you know, treatment for hyperemesis gravidarum. They have clearly shown GDA15 is a target and also that's receptor GFRAL is a target. You know, like there's multiple ways you can treat. So one, you can you can actually do some kind of vaccination-like approach where you actually, you know, sensitize the desensitize the women before they get pregnant. If you know, you know, like they might get it, like their family history of you know, like severe nausea, vomiting, something like that. But you can also use something like antibodies to GDA15, or you can even prevent GDA15 to go and act on the GFL by, you know, knocking down or prevent, you know, like blocking the GFL. There's like so many different pathways, therapeutic pathways. And this, like, I, I'm, I will closely watch this. It's going to be like really amazing story how it ends up, you know, like, I think it's a fantastic story. And the other thing is, like you said, you put this correctly in this topic. Like they, it's the number of cases Marlena used in the 23 collaboration, like very few, like 2,300 cases or so. So again, this is a phenotype that could have been GWAS long time ago. And if it happened, the whole story this I told could be very different because yeah. imagine GDF15 and GFR 2007 or 2008, like that could have actually led to the discovery of the receptor for GDF15. Right now, we now the GWAS locus said, Oh, this is the receptor for GDA 15. If you found this like many 10 years or 15 years ago, it could have the story could have evolved differently. It's really fascinating to think about it. Yeah, it's amazing stuff. And I, and I think, uh, at least according to the NHS website here in the UK, eight out of 10 pregnant women feel sick. There's a spectrum here some extreme nausea and vomiting, some a little bit more mild, but the you know, the potential impact of some of the different therapeutic approaches you mentioned here is enormous. And yeah, I was just thinking about this, you know, low-hanging fruit question. It seems like there's a couple of important ingredients. You obviously have to have the data set to begin with. And we've talked a lot about different data sets that are being generated. The UK Biobank, 23andMe, and many others have existed for a while, but now we're starting to get much better representation. The second thing you have to have is a motivated scientist or group of scientists to go after that phenotype. But then I think the third one that this story highlights as well is a really a person or group of people that really can link the deep clinical knowledge to the understanding of genetics yeah. because it's not sufficient to just find the hit in 23andMe or find it in the UK Biobank. This is some really, and I, I think one of the stories earlier, BCL11A is a good example. And one of the other ones that we discussed earlier, APOL1 maybe is a good example of this. There's and NFTO actually was the one I was thinking of, someone who really digs into the details to try to understand some of the apparent paradoxes that the that the GWAS hits often present. I think that final piece is not is not to be overlooked as well, because you can't just solve this with having big data sets. You need people to go in and and scratch their heads against some of these uh, paradoxes that initially show up and try to figure out what's actually going on. So I think this story ties all that together. Really yeah, that's, yeah, that's a fantastic point. I mean, like, even if retrospectively we do an analysis of what kind of GWAS targets actually succeeded in terms of, you know, our understanding, then we would find that the ones that people, not just, you know, genticists, but people who worked with, you know, like translational with clinicians and, you know, like molecular biologists who all work together to solve the problem. 
And yeah, I think that's that's the major that's the that's the one important take home from these kind of you know studies that you should. Yeah, and in um, our a couple episodes ago, episode one twelve with David Ochoa from Open Targets, he mentioned that an initial they they looked at how genetics impacted the likelihood of a drug succeeding in clinical trials and ultimately getting approved, and they looked retrospectively over many years, and and they found something that I thought was really interesting, which was if you do have a first pass. And you don't look into the link between the genetics and the target and the drug super closely. You don't find a very uh, high hit rate. But if you have somebody who really understands the disease and the biology and you take that time to actually go in and understand the link between the what genetic data exists or existed at the time and the and the finding that you actually find a very high number of these, if you have the right person looking at it, they find really clear supporting genetic evidence. And it seems like it sort of fits with this model as well, that we have no replacement right now for the really strong clinical background. It has me wondering at what point will large language models and and some of these improvements allow people who don't have that clinical deep clinical understanding to start to harness that knowledge themselves. At what point do we have a Stephen O'Reilly in a box, a chat GPT that I, I suspect we're probably far away from that. But it's, you know, it's 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 one of the things that these models are good at is ingesting yeah. enormous amounts of knowledge. They're also very good at hallucinating and making things up. But it has me wondering at what point this this becomes something that is available to everyone as well, but maybe not not soon. Should we transition on to some interesting rare variant discoveries? And actually, I think yeah, I think uh, we're still in the same theme of kind yes. of hanging fruits, but being like looking at the common variants, very similar theme in the rare variants. Yeah, and, and a, a similar group of people are involved with this paper, at least, um, Stephen, who you yeah. mentioned before, but a, a wider author list on this. Maybe you can talk about this new gene that they discovered called bassoon, which is a very nice name, Richie. Yeah, so last year when we discussed, we have been like discussing about many rare variant discoveries, right? GPR-75 and things like that. And this, that is because that's when the UK biobank exome sequencing just called out and, you know, like people are doing all these discoveries. And um, so only this year, actually, I think people started like getting access to the full exome-wide data, data set, full UK biobank exome sequencing data set. And I've been like, think I was like expecting to see many more, you know, like associations, but I'm not sure if, if I actually uh, did, but this one particular association it's very interesting because, you know, many teams found it. And firstly, like this is for the BMI, right? BMI, is, I think, is one of the most studied traits in the UK Biobank. I think like there should be like at least 10 papers on people looking at the rare variant associations. So this kind of slipped out, slipped away in the radar of, you know, like RGC or maybe the elder, but they later maybe did. I'm not sure. But it was not reported in the paper that they, you know, published in the science. And because they looked into like kind of burden associations less than one percentage. And then people have been like doing analysis in different ways, looking at very, you know, like severely damaging rare variants, very rare variants, right? And so this came up and like not one from, you know, like two or at least three teams. And they found when you look at this very rare loss of function variance burden, there is like this gene BSN3 where people are like the FX size is really huge. It's even more than the FX size. You look at like heterozygous carriers of mutation, you know, like in the MC4R gene, which is a very well known established, you know, uh, Mendelian obesity gene. 
And this is really impressive because, you know, it's interesting that we didn't know about this gene all these years. Like MC4R been like discovered maybe like 20 years ago or so. And you can call that like a low hanging fruit in the rare variant space, right? And we are finding some kind of intermediate hanging fruit, I can say it like. And it's very interesting because this is, doesn't look like, you know, what we typically see in the Mendelian obesity genes, like this open leptin melanocortin, you know, pathways. This is kind of a, looks like a neurodegeneration gene. It's very interesting because this gene has been also implicated. The, this actually, how they initially discovered this gene was by looking at the transcripts, the, you know, in the cerebellum of Parkinson's patients. So at that point, they didn't know anything about this. That's how they, that's how they first found this gene, BSN3. So now they find this association with obesity. And interestingly, just a few weeks ago, there was like a paper on early onset Parkinson from Indian population, actually. That's, that would have been another paper in the list if I, if I yeah. looked at all my tweets properly. So now I remember it. So one of the genes that they found with the Parkinson is like BSN3. So it's very interesting. It brings neurodegeneration and severe obesity in together, right? So I'm really looking forward to see how this gene pans out. I mean, this was like, this is a preprint from MRC, but there's also a publication from Wendy Chung and other people from Columbia University. And interestingly, you know, like the, one of the, one of the, you know, like disadvantage or, you know, like from the UK Biobank or things like that, when you actually look into the association, you cannot go, you know, like look into, for example, if you ask a question, how's the appetite of these people? All these people like, you know, and those questions you cannot answer because you are restricted the phenotype, right? Actually, this, this team from the Columbia University, they scanned the exome genome of a cohort of extreme obesity. They identified two women and with the loss of function variant in BSN3. And it's like, they have extreme obesity. One is like, one of the patients was an African-American woman who had like 60 plus BMI at the age of 15. And the other one also like had extreme obesity because of severe hyperphagia. And both of them had gastric bypass surgery. It's the kind, these rare patients actually give little more details on patients carrying this mutation. And this is really interesting. And I don't think those patients had any kind of evidence of neurodegeneration or anything. So there is something happening with the, how the mutations results, right? Whether it's just an obesity or Parkinson's disease or, you know, it's going to be very interesting to see how this pans out in the upcoming years. Yes. And I, I was going to look it up right now because I remember reading this um Parkinson's in India paper, and I, it actually caught my eye because of the novel variants found in the GBA gene, but I hadn't realized that they identified variants in um, bassoon as well. Do you remember if they were loss of function variants in bassoon or not? Because I think one of the neurodevelopmental phenotypes, the neurodevelopmental phenotype is associated with missense variants. I think the obesity with loss of function, and I wasn't sure about the Parkinson's disease, but clearly there's a uh, you know, there's maybe gain of function and loss of function kinds of things going on. Yeah, I think it's a loss of function, PLOFs, or maybe PLOFs and deleterious missions combined. It's kind of like, yeah. you know, it's a burden test. But yeah, it'll be interesting to see. There is actually a mice knockout. And when you actually create a homozygous, like, you know, full knockout, actually the mice have like neurodegeneration, spontaneous seizures 
but not obesity. So it's here, the, what we are looking at here is heterozygote carriers who have severe obesity. And probably the homozygous absence of this genus lethal, I think so. Probably it's very rare to see, but probably we might see at some, you know, there might some, we might see some report of, you know, consanguineous family having one member or someone, you know, with this knockout and probably that will give more insight. So yeah, something to really closely watch for. Yeah, why why do you think this gene was discovered so long after MC4R and some of the others? You you mentioned them having comparable effect sizes. I think just for for people's reference, the effect size of MC4R is something in the range of I think two kilograms of additional body weight per carrier. This one is between two and two and a half, I think. So it's a it's a big effect in and of itself. I'm I'm wondering why. It's taken us until 2023 to find it. Yeah, so I think it's the rarity of the variant. The MC4R is relatively more common. We, we have more number of carriers than, right? And and it's also like MC4R, I think it's like you might be enriched in a lot of populations and you also have, it falls in the very well understood biological pathways. So, you know, that kind of makes you go look for it, right? And yeah, regarding the effect size comparison, definitely it's, it's bigger than MC4R in the analysis of what they did in the UK Biobank. But also I need to highlight the fact that people with MC4R mutations in the UK Biobank is kind of slightly biased towards people having a less severe form of the mutation, you know, because of some modified penetrance. And there are people who also have like, you know, more severe forms of obesity if you look outside the healthy population. So yeah, but still it's really amazing to see this bigger effect size than MC4R in the UK biobank. Yes, no, that, that makes sense. I, I thought maybe it'd be worth us talking about a couple of these non-coding variants, actually, because this is an area that's close to my heart, having spent four or five years of my PhD looking very hard for non-coding variants that cause developmental disorders and not finding very many. But they are out there. And I remember reading papers of some amazing work looking at enhancers that cause all sorts of rare problems in in rare disease cases but there are two that came out this year one in uh fox a2 uh, deletions of, of um in fox a2 and another zinc finger maybe you can talk about the first one and why it caught your eye yeah so this topic is probably also very timely you know because with the release of whole genome sequencing there's been so much interest in mode what people are going to find with the whole genome sequencing right that people didn't find with the whole exome sequencing and one of the first things people you know, often say is like non-coding variants, like non-coding rare variants. And also, I like, I like this topic very much. I highlighted a few examples of you know, very fascinating non-coding rare variants, but they saw those, those, those causes Mendelian diseases. Again, it's very similar here, right? So I think the general thing we all agree is like we are just scratching the surface of how this non-coding variants causes disease. But, you know, like it also limits our understanding of their structure, right? They don't have like, we don't know, like we cannot annotate the variants like we annotate for the for the coding variants, like loss of function or misdance. And so for many reasons, there's these kind of isolated reports like uh, really interest me. And I've been following up on this particular team from the University of Exeter. They've been like collecting, you know, like samples of, you know, people with congenital hyperinsulinism and trying to identify genetic diagnosis, you know, like it happens one by one. And we discussed one paper last year on the hexokinase mutation 
that causes congenital hyperinsulinism. So now they have an updated report on the, where they find that CNVs is, you know, is the cause for this disease in like few patients. And they tried to see, okay, patients with very similar regions of CNVs, and then they tried to overlap the CNVs to see if they can pinpoint the gene. And it's very interesting because what typically in a workflow, what we do is like we always assume that it is some gene getting deleted, right? Some gene within the within the CNV is actually the one that's causing. And so we will restrict our focus towards genes that fall only within the overlapping regions of the CNV. And that's exactly what they did. They triangled out some five or six genes and none of them had any kind of link with, you know, like biological link with the hyperinsulinism. And then, okay, they decided, okay, let's, let's extend the window a little bit. And then they found this one interesting gene, FOXA2, which has been previously associated with hyperinsulinism, heterozygous loss of function. And it makes sense. Then they went and then they can see that it actually does CN, a couple of CNVs actually deleted partly the coding region of FOXA2. But there are a couple more or three more cases where not, right? And it turned out like these CNVs actually deleted the regulatory region of FOXA2. And these deletions have the ex almost same effect of deleting the whole gene. That is like, you know, this is kind of, the thing that we wanted, we are hoping to look at, find out when we are doing whole genome sequencing analysis in the UK Biobank, right? For now, we have carriers of loss of function mutations in the UK Biobank. One of the things that we hope by looking at the regulated regions can be increased this number of carriers, right? People with severe deficiency of the gene because they're deleting some rare non-coding region who will have same similar disease a risk effect like deleting the gene or having a loss of function variant. It's going to be extremely challenging, but these are all very nice examples like to go, you know, like see how like an empirical data there is. It is possible that there are regulatory regions if it is deleted that can cause a loss of function like effect and the disease, very similar disease. So that is the FOXA2. And the other one is the Isidenov 808. It's slightly Different, but again, it boils down to the non-coding region. So this is here, it is a transcription factor. And this is like people from the teams from Exeter, Cambridge, and Finland scientists. And this is like the same, some of the same scientists from the, you know, Exeter also involved in this. And what they found here, so here they are looking at trying to establish genetic diagnosis for, you know, like pancreatic agenesis, people, you know, who are born without pancreas. And so here they identified like two patients where they had homozygous loss of function of Zitanov 808. And then they did all the function analysis. It's very interesting because like this gene actually is a transcription factor. And the function of this gene is like it silences all the you know, transposons in the genome. So loss of this gene actually results in aberrant activation of transposons. So our very next topic is tandem repeats. We will come to this, but transposons is comprised 50% of the genome. Most of them are dormant, right? And activation of transposons causing disease is something very, it's very early stages. There have been like few cases, but that is like a whole area, right? And this kind of falls under that. And the most thing that really interested me here is this gene is actually specific to primates. 
it's not a concert, you know, it's not a concert scene. So I don't know if we discussed this during our last, you know, year podcast when you are looking at the, when you're discussing the whole genome sequencing paper from the decode, one of the interesting finding is, so they did this constraint metrics, like, like sliding window analysis, where they look at what all the regions in the whole genome where mutations are very less than what we expected. So those are probably disease enriched regions, right? And what they found is almost 50% of the constrained region, the non-coding constrained region are specifically seen in humans and it is not absent in other species. So, you know, human specific constraint, right? So this is one, I think the first example I've seen where a gene which is like primate specific actually causing a neurodevelopmental or like a developmental, sorry, not neurodevelopment, developmental disorder causing pancreaticogenesis. So it's a very interesting, you know, like other aspect, the other important, in, very nice thing they showed is like when they actually, you know, this is important, this gene is important to actually, you know, like control the trajectory of this gene expression programs where decide whether the control the fate of these different cells, whether they become liver or whether they become pancreas. So loss of this results actually push, pushes all the gene expression programs towards liver, you know, and that they also show using functional studies. It's a very interesting paper, but, you know, like I'm interested, I was like, found this very interesting because of the non-coding aspect of it and also the constraint, the primates, first primate specific developmental disorder, I think. Yeah, I think the point about conservation and or lack lack of evolutionary conservation and the novelty and evolutionary time of this gene caught my eye as well because I, as I mentioned before, spent a lot of time looking at the non-coding genome and there are these interesting segments of the genome that are ultra-conserved, so they're nearly exactly the same all the way back to fish or or flies or even further in some cases where and you know from the reasons you named you'd suspect that maybe they are critically important but then there are other regions of the genome that are called human accelerated regions which were those that are ultra conserved but then in the you know in the in relatively recent evolutionary time they've changed a lot for example between humans and primates and again there's a question there of are these human accelerated regions particularly important but then you mentioned a third here which is totally novel at least to humans relative to other other primates or other species. And I think one of the things that's been a challenge for the field more generally is understanding the language of regulatory regions. And we be interesting to talk about UK Biobank and long-read sequencing and, and some of these other points a little later in the show, but we still seem very far from understanding the language of the non-coding region. And, and I don't know that the whole genome sequencing in the UK Biobank will necessarily solve that because there's probably some kind of cell-specific grammar that we really need to understand through large scale cell screens and and maybe large language models thinking of the regulatory space as a language could be a, an interesting way to think about this as well but it seems like it seems like we're still far from cracking the code of the non-coding genome in the way that we know the triplet code of the coding genome very well and but this is a good example i think is the more examples that we find of non-coding regions causing disease, we can start to work backwards from those and understand a little bit. Once we know how it gets broken, maybe we figure out how it how it's constructed in the first place. Exactly. Do you want to transition to tandem repeats? And I so the the amazing story from around the Huntington's repeat expansion is the first on our list, but I was wondering actually if we save that till last, because I think it's a to me it's one of the most interesting stories of this year, just from a we can finish on that one and then 
we'll go into the not predictions maybe but themes to watch for 2024 does that sound good let's start with the the str mutation rate paper that was definitely news to me having spent a lot of time learning about de novo mutation rate in snvs in my phd i didn't think much about strs but we've got the data now to do it yeah so this is other you know really interesting topic area that's going to pick up after because of this whole genome sequencing data huge data that we are getting from uk biobank right so this is one area that i'm very excited about and you know if you look at the genome right 50% of the genome like our repeat, repeat region. So even, you know, if you look at the long document from the Human Genome Project, from the, you know, the publications of Nature and Science, they will, they, there will be like very interesting section on how they annotate the genomes as the first time we have an annotation of the full genome, right? 50% of the genome is like repeat region. Of this, 45% are just transposon. They are like, you know, this, the um, jumping genes, as we could say. And the remaining, among the remaining, there are like, we have very large, you know, repetition regions. That's what we see in the centromeres and the telomeres. And then there's like pseudogene segmental duplications. Then we have this very interesting type of variance called short sequence repeats, right? So it's just the repetition of few, one, like two, three, four, few base pairs again and again and again, right? And so traditionally, they divide this into two categories. One is like microsatellites and the other one is like mini satellites. So the microsatellites are, I think, like two base pairs up to 10. Some people say seven. And these are the ones that actually draw all the linkage analysis that have been happened before we started doing GWAS because they are very polymorphic, one of the most polymorphic regions. And, and so you can have this like restriction digestion based markers, which you can use to map the gene disease locus, right? This happened very early, right? And these are the ones that's been also used as a DNA fingerprinting. And um, so a lot of neurodegeneration related, you know, repeat expansions and things like that, like triplet expansion, they also fall under the microsatellite. Then we have the mini satellites, like more than 10, or this is called VNTR variable number tandem repeats. There are, this is something we still don't know. But the interesting thing is like, there are some that are very common. Like for example, there's a VNTR in the promoter region of insulin. This is a very first risk gene associated with type one diabetes. And then there are a lot of VNTRs that's been classically studied for candidate gene associations. We still have to, look at the data to see if those are true because like a lot of the GWAS disproved all the candidate gene hypothesis that happened before but the VNTR hypothesis is still there because we haven't looked into that so that's one thing that UK Biobank is going to help and um, so the decode paper is very interesting because you know they are typically all the mutation rate papers come from decode because they had this very beautiful multi-generation data set where they can actually look into, you know, the mutation rates across the generations. So here they look into the SDRs. They particularly look into the microsatellite mutation rate. And I think the most important impressive finding here is like, we know they are very highly mutable regions. And so they give like a data empirical estimate, right? So it's like they say um, around 13, you know, like 63 
63 to 65 mutations per person per generation. You need to compare this with the single nucleotide variant, right? So there we are looking at the whole genome where anywhere they can occur and it is like 60 to 70, right? This STRs they are looking at is just 1.5 percentage of the genome. And just that percentage alone has that much produced that many mutations per generation compared to the whole genome SNVs, right? And uh, if you scale it, I think it will, if you, if you imagine a situation where the whole genome is STRs, then every person, every generation, you will have like 2000 new mutations. That is like amazing. So I don't think anything comes close to it. That's like really, you know, like it also makes sense as one of the most polymorphic sites. And the, bi the biological reason behind this is also very important and probably for our discussion about the HDD, right? So the DNA polymerase, when they try to replicate the genome, when they really struggle, when they come to this repetition regions, right? So a lot of time, this repeat regions form loops. And then they, when they, they actually try to fix it, but instead of, you know, like they get confused and keep going in, uh, they kind of put more than what actually is there. And that kind of results in the, you know, expansion. So all this, because of these reasons, the, it's very unstable region and there's like causes hypermutations. And um, so I think this decode paper will be like a very important reference in that. So that is one. Then we have the other paper from the, you know, photo laws group where they actually did some interesting association analysis of VNTR. So this is the, you know, the, the mini satellites that we are talking about. So the, the very interesting background, you know, fact of this paper is that, you know, this evolution of data sets from the UK Biobank. First, we had the array data. Then we had, the, you know, sequencing data. Then we are having now like the whole genome sequencing data. And often people, you know, companies fund this. But there, always there was like a competition about who gets hold of the finding, who discovers things first, right? And there are this the people like, you know, who are expert in this imputation, like Paul Raw and, you know, people from there, they actually do this, like every time just try to do this, you know, before, for example, they did this imputation of whole rare variants, even before whole exome sequencing was available. And they found all the, like a lot of interesting genes, even before we can do it, you know, people did it with the actual data. And so very same way they actually Recently, you know, last year, they published this repeat regions and the coding regions of the genome. They published two important findings. One is the AKN for the height and the other one is the LPA. Repeat regions has been known. They gave a lot of new insights, right? And uh, so this year, they have published a paper in the cell where they look into the repeat regions in the not coding region, focusing on the VMTRs. And the major, you know, take home here, there's like so many interesting analysis here, at least for our discussion here, is that they identified a couple of genome-wide significant locus that the actually causal variant is a VNTR. There's two interesting findings. One is like glaucoma. There is a genome-wide significant locus at near TMCO1. This is one of the strongest locus identified very early in the GWAS timeline. And it turned out the causal variant here is actually a VNTR, 28 base pair variable number tandem repeat. Similarly, colon cancer, I think that's discovered this gene, there is like this genome-wide significant locus at EIF3H gene, and it's been like identified very early in 2008. It seems the causal variant here is like a 27 base pair 
VN, variable number tandem repeat. So there is like whole bunch of like list of these kind of genes sitting in the GWAS catalog where the causal variants are actually structural variants. There is like a very beautiful paper from Decode last year based on, you know, like long read sequencing where they I kind of identified a lot of such examples. We'll be like, look, we'll be like looking at a lot of these as people start analyzing the whole genome sequencing data. But the interesting thing is there are people more intelligent, more brilliant who can predict this, impute this, even without any whole genome sequencing data, just based on, you know, like this haplotype sharing and linkage disequilibrium. And it's really fascinating. And, you know, yeah, it's a really amazing, very, very interesting paper. I presented it in a journal club in our RGC, actually. Yeah, it, it, I think it is a super cool paper. And for figure three, if people do want to look up the paper, has a really just a very clear plot that shows how many repeats someone has. And then the glaucoma risk, intraocular pressure is the, is the, it, that's around the glaucoma locus, but it's quite a clear effect and a pretty significant one. And these aren't uncommon, you know, 10, half a, let me see, a little frequency of 5% or so in, in uh, some case or nearing 5% for some of these repeats. I was going to ask the question around long read sequencing, short read. So I think these papers, they use clever imputation methods and they validate with long read sequencing. But I'm, I'm wondering from your perspective, is there a huge amount that's going to be discovered here when we start doing large scale whole, whole genomes using long reads? Or is this, have these been kind of statistically worked out where we shouldn't expect to see, you know, a blossoming of many new micro and mini satellite discoveries that come out of long read sequencing? Or, or is it the case where we don't know what we don't know until we do some of these studies in a major way? Yeah, I think it's very difficult to guess that. Definitely, it's, you know, like just using a short rate whole genome sequencing, you're not going to find a lot of this, but that will boost some of the, you know, association analysis. But I'm sure like there will be more targeted long read sequencing analysis based on insight to get from the whole genome sequencing data or some kind of intuition. Maybe this is, you know, like caused by some, you know, structural variations. Speaking of which, now I remember there is this. This is also a very low-hanging fruit locus for frontotemporal dementia. You know, there is one TMM106B locus being found very early on, and we never knew what was the fossil variant there. And recently, two independent teams actually did this long-read sequencing, and then they identified an element that is inserted into the promoter of this region, and they showed this is actually the fossil variant. I mean, these kind of more targeted, so they only targeted this region and then they made use of some of the long read sequencing data and then they beautifully identified the mapped out the fossil variant. So these kind of examples we will see more and more, but in a more, you know, high throughput way or I, I think like it's, it's, it's still far away from now to have that kind of data. Yeah, makes sense. Moving into the final one of this, which, I, as I mentioned before, is to me one of the most amazing talks I've seen in a while. You tweeted at live at, at ASHG after a late night after seeing this great talk. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the Huntington's disease uh, locus, what was presented, and, and maybe this new model for what's actually happening. And, and to me, this is another good example of this is a gene that's been studied exhaustively for a really long time. And new technologies are uncovering some, you know, pretty novel mechanisms that hopefully, you know, point towards 
therapeutic options in the future. But yeah, I thought it was such an exceptional talk. And I it has me thinking more about these repeat expansion disorders because Huntington's disease is not the only one. We have C9, North 72, and FTD, and ALS. And it, I think many people around the world are going to be working to see whether this paradigm applies to other diseases. But maybe you can talk a little about the paradigm first before I uh, get over my skis uh, talking about how cool it is. Yeah, so... You know, this is like really interesting. I mean, this, this, this talk is from Steve Mackerel's lab. And the person who presented is like Bob Hansecker. I think from he, he, you know, like many people liked it. I also liked it really very much. And this is about this Huntington's disease, right? Like you mentioned, we know that we, the gene the causing Huntington's was discovered a long time ago. And then there's been like, huge amount of research and understanding right so one of the complaints about we when we started this podcast the first part and episode i was telling about the time gap between the initial gene discovery and then the first fda approval right so this is like on average 25 years but it can be really really long because there are a lot of challenges right i think huntington's is a very good example about you know, because we know the gene, we know a little bit about how, how the neurodegeneration is happening, you know, just for the sake of audience, Huntington's is caused by this triplet repeat expand, you know, like a mutation in the Huntington's gene, CAG repeat, and this results in this polyglutamate tract in the protein and um, this, ne- this neuronal synaptic protein, and this causes toxicity in the brain and results in neurodegeneration, particularly in the striatal region, right? So, and this causes all motor symptoms and dementia and cognitive deficits. Yeah, so here, you know, like what we know about this is like, we know there is like this triplet repeat and, you know, and then like the number of repeats each person can have in the population can vary. And people who have typically, I think more than 37 actually have or like, you know, develop Huntington's disease. And we really don't know the mechanism of how you know like the neurodegeneration happens and this is like really hindering the tract development for a lot of time people have focused on you know the accumulated you know repeat protein like toxic repeat protein and i think even billions of dollars have been spent on this and none of the truck actually took off and only like few maybe in the last decade there's been this new insight on the repeat expansion right so then people started thinking like, you know, you should be focusing on, you know, preventing the expansion of the repeats rather than focusing on the accumulated routines in the brain, right? And this comes from a lot of studies. There's like a GWAS of age of onset of Huntington that actually showed this mutation in DNA mismatch repair gene actually affects the, you know, the age of onset of Huntington's. So what here, I think the major important top like findings that they presented is like they looked in, they looked into the repeat expansion, right, of this Huntington's protein in the brain in, in the striatum, in the cell type specific manner, right? And what they found is that this repeat expansion has been happening only in the specific subtype of neuron called medium spiny neurons in the striatum. And it is like absent elsewhere. So this is, we know this, like, you know, this is first time they're showing actually in the, using the single cell technology. And then the, I think the other major thing here is like, they look into how many repeats are there, right? So they found that number of repeats in the brain of these, like in this disease patients are like in thousands or, you know, a few thousands. 
And typically our cutoff in a, in a clinically, when we say this is risk for Huntington is like 37. And what we see in the brains in these patients actually have like far above that. And somehow we know about this before, but this is how they, this is the first time they're showing in a cell type specific manner. But the important insight here is like how these people who have, let's say 40 lipids or 45 lipids end up having so many more number of repeats in the brain. So this happens slowly, right? So the age of onset of Huntington is like around 45 years. And so it turns out that, you know, the, the, the somatic expansion happened through two phases. One is like early, very slow phase. And then there is a tipping point, right? Where you actually, the, the pathology becomes, accelerates really fast. And they did some very interesting analysis using the single cell, you know, like data where they looked at the gene expression profile of different types of repeats, right? So when they looked at, they actually saw that at particular level, right? I think it's 180 repeat. What happened is completely the gene expression program is disrupted where you can any anymore, you cannot even say this is a medium spiny neuron. Even the cellular identity is lost. But before that, before the 180 repeats, there is like not much of an effect. You know, so the idea is that people slowly accumulate, expand the repeats because of this, you know, like the known fact about this DNA polymerase and this, this how it, this, you get this repeat expansion over cell division. And this happens until 180, probably it happens slowly. And then after that, there is like really a false phase where things get really worse, you know. And so you might have like a window where you actually treat the patient and prevent these things happening. And we there's been like a lot of interest in looking at DNA repair genes, MSH2, MSH3 genes as a means to, you know, prevent this repeat expansion. And I think the field is really going to pick up. There's going to be like a lot of research into this in the upcoming years. But I think like what Bob Hansicke presented so I, mean, I, I, I don't think I'm presenting all the major findings it did, but it's really a big advancement in our understanding. And uh, this is going to like really, you know, amazing how this is going to be picking up in the upcoming years. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And there's other stories that I'm going to be following that are kind of in the same single cell and somatic, you know, mutation sort of theme. There was an interesting paper that looked at somatic mosaicism in metabolic liver disease. So looking at NASH and you know, sort of a similar story of understanding at a single cell level how individual changes and then the collection of these changes within the ecosystem of the liver, whether or the, the organ, whether it's the liver or the brain or otherwise. And I think it's it's adding a layer of useful mechanistic information that the germline data just doesn't tell us, right? We know that in this Huntington's case, people start with a particular number of repeats that we can identify based on sequencing in the germline. But what's happening in the in this particular cell type is, is something really different. And understanding that uh, is probably the key to treating it, as you've said. So yeah, that, there is like one very fascinating article on Huntington's, the whole story in stat. We should put that in the link. You know, it covers the full story from the gene discovery until now, what are the insights? What are people are really looking into in treating this? So that also covers the the findings from Steve Mackerel's work, group lab's work. Great. I think I've just found that article. I'll stick it in the notes. So, so to close out here, I wonder if you could maybe share, you've got 
three or four points that I think you're going to be watching closely. Three things in 2024. The first one is maybe an important continuation of the discussion that we've had today, but I'd love if you could just give a highlight of each of these and the kinds of things you're going to be watching. Yeah. So my what I'm going really looking forward into, you know, like three major areas. One is the era of genetic medicine. So right this is the era of genetic medicine you know like what many of the findings that we with that we discussed today we we discussed also the translational aspect of it any drug targets and things like that and this is how it's going to be given you know all the new data is coming up so i'm really excited about what are the new you know rare variants or common rare variants that you know that give you insight about you know new drug targets and yeah so that's something that i'm very interested with also because i kind of work in that line, right? So the one first one is the era of genetic medicines, obviously, what new discoveries that come up in whole genome sequencing or exome sequencing, et cetera. And the second one that I'm really interested in, like the technology, the long range sequencing technology, how it's going to improve, you know, our understanding of many of the diseases. So here there's like very, very nice example that I actually highlighted that this was a preprint where they showed that they actually solved almost a 25-year-old genetic puzzle, you know. So we have like different types of ataxia, like spinous tabular ataxia. There is a type called SEN4, uh, SE4, and like uh, this type, there was like first identified in a family in Utah, right? So, and they identified that using the linkage analysis, they identified uh, the, the genomic locus, but and you know if you if you read that paper the authors are like more optimistic about identifying the causative genes probably in the next few years but they had no idea that it will be like not identified for the next 25 years it's a very right. complex region there is like a lot of segmental duplications it's a very gc rich enriched region so it seems almost impossible to resolve that region using short rate sequencing and you know, like these people actually thought, okay, hey, now we have back by one of the technologies to do long hit sequencing. Why don't we look into these patients? They went back, they looked into the archive, you know, this DNA sample of the very same family, and they did the sequencing using long read sequencing. It's there. It's very clear. They found the same family. A, I didn't catch that it was the same family. That's amazing. The GGC repeats, you know, in the ZFHX3 region in the exon 10 and it's a ggc repeat it's a triplet repeat and it's like they even did some in vitro studies to show if you knock it down you can actually you know like um, reduce all the pathology caused by this repeat actually so it's a very powerful example of what you know technology new technology will bring so this is always the theme for me i mean all the things that we do here for example people always criticize about we are finding thousands and thousands of genes from the GWAS association studies and things like that. What is what these genes are going to bring up? I mean, what we are doing is we are producing the data for future generation to work on, you know. So all these discoveries are cumulative. Like we work on all the data that's been generated over the past 10 years or 20 years. Even now, we go back to the genetic linkage studies, family linkage studies, and then we, you know, like solve this problem, like this example. So this is how it's so we shouldn't overlook what we are, you know, doing here just because we did not understand. As the technology progresses, we will definitely, you know, people might make big breakthrough discoveries in this. 
So that's one reason why I'm in really interested in the long read sequencing, how it you know it will change the landscape. And the third one is like phenotyping. I always talk about it. One of the important things we really need to innovate is like how we do phenotyping in genetic association studies. And this is really, really important for conditions like, you know, brain-related conditions or psychiatric disorders, neurological diseases. We really don't have like endophenotypes like, you know, you can just go and do an LDL cholesterol genetic association study. You can find protective genes and you can use this to develop drugs for cardiovascular diseases. It's not that simple for diseases like schizophrenia or bipolar disorder. You know, we need to innovate the phenotyping. One thing that I'm really excited about is going really very proximal to the DNA, looking at, you know, cellular level, phenotyping at the cellular level. There's like the very starting of this year, there was a beautiful paper from Soumya Richotri from Brigham's, you know, and people from, you know, like a lot of other people from the Harvard, they actually looked into the, they used the induced pluripotent stem cells to derive, you know, like cells and then, they looked, they did some phenotyping of, you know, cellular, how the cytoplasm or the mitochondrial distribution, they used this microscopy. And then they did a genome-wide association study, an exome-wide association study. They found beautiful association signals. You know, they did, they found three peel-off signals that is like an actin cytoskeleton genes that actually, when you have loss of function of that gene, it disrupts the shape of the cytoplasm. And there's like a prolactin receptor gene that actually disrupts the, how the mitochondria is distributed within the cells. And this is a fantastic proof of concept, like this handful of iPSC cells, you know, a like handful of samples, and you can find these associations. So by going into the cellular phenotyping, you can really increase the power. And this is what is going to change the landscape of, you know, the field like psychiatric genetics and things like that. And already people are working on those things, right? Trying to use the the psychiatric patients, you know, cells like to do this induced pluripotent sensors, derive neurons or differentiate them into neurons or things like that, and look at all the cellular level, you know, phenotypes and associate them with their genetic factors. So that's like really I'm excited about. And you can also one other uh, area where I am kind of curious is like how people will use the embryo samples, you know, the the embryo screening is picking up the recent ORCID announcement and things like that. And one untapped potential there is like, you know, all these IVF clinics, they discard a lot of embryos, you know, and these embryos can be an amazing sample to do establish some genetic, you know, variation database and things like that. There's like very nice pilot study, preprint where they actually looked into the discarded embryos, you know, often they, embry- they get discard embryos for reasons like, you know, if the embryos have a nuploidy, like trisomy or monosomy and things like that. So they, they collected all such embryos and then they compared with the normal embryos and then did this, this genome-wide association kind of study. And they identified a very interesting locus that's like a microtubule gene, which is actually the main gene important for the chromosome segregation during this, you know, this meiosis, right? And that is the major reason for this, like those anomalies causes this aneuploidy. It's a fantastic proof of concept where you can use this kind of samples to do that. I mean, from a population genetic standpoint, I think like all our databases right now, we have those like adult samples, elderly samples, you know, like middle-aged samples. 
and we really lack pediatric samples, but we also lack, you know, samples. We should go even beyond before birth, you know, like prenatal, any kind of samples from the prenatal. This will really give you, you know, idea about, you know, all these constrained genes, genes that cause us, you know, prenatal mortality or postnatal mortality. There's a beautiful paper from the decode where they look into the homozygous depletion, you know, the peel-off, typical, the peel-off, the, the, the statistics, PLI statistics that we use to define genes constrained, you know, from the nomad, it's based on the heterozygous loss of function variance, right? We don't have anything for the homozygous loss of function variance. And that is one area people are really interested in that. And to look into those things, you really need databases that go, you know, to pediatric samples or even, you know, like newborn or even embryo samples. I think there's like a lot of untapped potential, both from the academic side and also from the, you know, like industry side. And I'm excited about that. I think I know some people are interested in that area. They are going to do some great, you know, very fascinating stuff there. Yeah, absolutely. Those are all great areas to look at. I, um, as always, second year in a row, love this episode. I think we've covered an enormous amount of ground. We we discussed that uh, we'd probably hit somewhere close to a three-hour mark on that, but that's okay. But hopefully it gives people something to do over the holidays, catch up on anything that they've missed in 2023. I am always amazed by your encyclopedic knowledge of everything that goes on in this field and uh, also the great storytelling that you do. I think that at the heart of all of these is a really interesting cast of characters and people who focused on some corner or giant open plane of new biology that they could uncover. And I think you do an amazing job telling the story about not just the new findings, but the people behind it that are able to figure these things out. So thank you as always. And and I'll just give a, a very a quick plug again that I think everyone, if they're on Twitter, should follow you. He's at Dr. Vera. And also you've got a Substack GWAS stories, right? They can go to GWASstories.com and subscribe if they want to get the written version of this and, and anything else. Anything else that you're looking for? If, if you want to do a quick shout out for anything? No, I just want to just thank you again for this opportunity. And like I mentioned before, I'm, I'm a big fan of your podcast series. And I think it's like a lot of people are really, you know, missing on that. It's there's like, huge amount of information there you know things you can hear from people only it's available there i think I, it's amazing what you're doing here i still you know uh, see how couldn't find understand how you are finding the time when you're also running a company you know as a ceo but it's, it's really impressive and um, yeah thank you so much for this opportunity hope i didn't take like too much time. <laughs> oh, it's great. And it's my pleasure. It's it's some of the best learning I can do. And we're we're actually, maybe this is a good time to announce we're moving to weekly in 2024. So up till now, we've done bi-weekly, um, but we've had an amazing set of guests in 2023. We've got many more exciting ones in 2024 coming. So yeah, it's it's it's, it's one of the best, best hours or a couple hours a week that I get to spend. So thank you and uh, happy holidays. Great to see you. Thank you very much. Happy holidays to you too. Great. And thanks, everyone, as always, for listening. We hope you enjoyed this special two-part episode. Please give us feedback if there are any uh, things you wish you would have heard about or guests that you'd like to see. And to all of you, thanks so much. If this is your first episode or if you've been listening since the very beginning, hope you have a happy holidays and we will see you in 2024. 